When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Some people just know there's a better way to do things, like bundling your home and auto insurance with Allstate, or hiring someone to move your piano instead of doing it yourself. So do things the better way. Bundle home and auto and save up to 25% with Allstate. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois. This is the Carolina Insider from Learfield. Back again on the Carolina Insider podcast, Jones, Adam, and uh, Adam, we're not going to be super long-winded here because we have an, uh, a tremendous interview coming up with Freddie Kiger, um, and we'll let that interview stand on itself here in just a minute. Um What's up? It's time to get a podjacation. <laughs> How long have you been thinking about that? It's been a couple days. <laughs> That's another one that my wife told me not to say. <sighs> That's better than the potty one, I think. Get the potty started. Yeah. The Tar Heels played Pittsburgh <laughs> a couple nights ago. They won the game 80-78. to 78. I think there's a lot of angst about how close the game was from Carolina Faithful. And maybe I'm seeing this from the Homer point of view. I just think Pitt played really well. They shot the ball really well. Some of that was Carolina needs to defend better. Some of that is Pitt is capable of getting super hot, and they did. Um, but I think in the end, it's one of those games that it only it only matters if you lose that game, and the Tar Heels didn't lose the game. It wasn't the prettiest, but they did what they had to do, and, and they move on. One thing I don't understand that's come out of that game is the storyline that, well, Carolina can't be that good until they get Theo Pinson back. Well, Carolina was good without Theo Pinson. They can't be the best they can be without Theo Pinson. But I don't think it's right for people to say kind of what they seem to be saying currently, which is, well, without Theo Pinson, Carolina's just not that good. That's not right. They've played many good games without him. That's That's not the whole answer. No, I mean, the Maui Championship, the game against Kentucky, 
Um, I mean, even some games, uh, the the Clemson win. I mean, there's plenty of instances of the Tar Heels getting some in, impressive performances and good wins without him. And hopefully he's back sooner than later. It's just one of the, we don't know. Um, so, I, I, again, I think Carolina just did what it had to do in the end, and that's win the game. Um, there was some interesting strategy at the end of the game. What did you think about fouling a three with seven seconds left or whatever it was? I thought it was interesting that Roy, Roy Williams said, well, I always like doing that. Yeah, hadn't done it a ton. I can't think of many examples in which he has, and even Justin Jackson said he was surprised by it. So I thought that was a little unusual, but, you know, there have been other instances in the ACC this week where a team chose not to do that. I also thought it was hilarious. The very first tweet I got after the game was, why in the world would you foul there and give them a chance to tie the game by missing a free throw when you could have just played it out and gotten a stop? Yep. I think that is exhibit one, I may print it out and frame it and put it on my wall. No matter what you do, if you are a head basketball coach at North Carolina or somewhere big like that, somebody somewhere thinks they know better. Oh, yeah, and no matter what. If you do A, and they would have done B. If you do B, they would have done A, no matter what. The only time that isn't the case, the only time, was like after that state game when they won by 51. Right. And remember, and I told you somebody sent me a tweet and said, well, that's how they should play every time. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. In fantasy land, yeah. you shoot 65%, if not 100%, <laughs> and get a bunch of turnovers and dunks and three-pointers and go to the free-throw line and make every free-throw because, of course, everybody makes every free-throw ever taken. I mean, that I, I do think there's that aspect. But, yes, everything else you're saying is absolutely true. But I thought, I thought that whole 9.7 seconds was really interesting. And Coach Williams said something after the game that I think people don't really think about which is part of the reason he was able to do that was because he feels so good about Kennedy Meeks throwing the ball in. Yeah. I, I think that's something we don't think about with Kennedy Meeks. And it wasn't an easy inbounds after no. Artis hit the two free throws to make it a one-point game. And if it was – I mean, Pitt had defended that well, the inbound, and Kennedy Meeks made a really tough pass and also credited Isaiah Hicks for making a difficult catch in traffic drawing the foul, and then he made one or two free throws, Carolina win. But that was not an easy play. And it was interesting because Carolina sent two guys long. And so that's a good idea, but what Pitt had elected to do was double cover Joel Berry. So when those two guys go long, and then you got two guys on Berry, the only place you can go is yep. Isaiah Hicks. Yep. And so just because of the way it played out, it kind of left Kennedy with fewer options than he might have otherwise had. And, and a couple people have said, well, why didn't Carolina just throw the ball to Berry? Well, because Pitt was double covering him yes. because they didn't want Carolina to throw the ball to Barry. Right. Um, Tariel's in the middle of a really difficult stretch coming up next is Notre Dame. Notre Dame's lost three in a row. They're going to be hungry for a win. They shoot a bunch of threes. They have the capability of making a bunch of threes from different positions. Um, I'm sure there's a little extra oomph from Notre Dame. The Tariel's played them three times last year, embarrassed them in the ACC tournament by 30-plus, then beat them in the round of eight after Notre Dame and won the regular season meeting. Carolina won that game in Philadelphia to go to the Final Four. This will be a good game on Saturday. I mean, it's going to be a great atmosphere. I feel like 6 o'clock, Smith Center, big game. I'm, I'm jazzed for this game just because I think it's going to be a really fun college basketball 
game and atmosphere. I think they're different than they have been when they've given Carolina the most trouble. And my perception of them, I haven't seen them play a ton. But when they really give Carolina trouble, my perception has been it's because they've got that penetrating point guard who either penetrates or kicks it out to their 18 three-point shooters. Mm -hmm. They don't really have the penetrator this year, but they've got the 18 three-point shooters. Yes, Farrell is – and Farrell's done a really good job at that point guard spot. Um, But he's not Jerry and Grant. Right, or Demetrius Jackson. Right. Right. Um, So, anyway, should be a fun game. Yes. All right, the reason we're burning through all this basketball talk is we have a tremendous interview coming up. I mean – an unbelievable interview. Typically, I think when we do these interviews, I feel like a little, I don't know, like obligation or pressure or something to come up with some good questions to ask the person mm-hmm. so that the listeners will get to hear something interesting. There was no pressure with Freddie Kiger because you just push the record button and say go, and we walked out for an hour and came back, and he was still here. He sent me a text after he and I talked about doing this, and I asked him if he could do it, and... um he sent me a text and said, do I need to do any research to be ready for this interview? And I said, Freddie, just bring your awesomeness. And he did. Yeah. All right. Let's go to the interview. Then we'll come back and very briefly talk about it a little bit. We don't really, there, there's really not much that we need to say at the end of this. But settle in. This is a great interview with Freddie Kiger. This might be, Adam, the most anticipated interview we've had so far <laughs> on the podcast. Now, let's keep in mind now, mm. I don't mind patting ourselves on the backs. We've had some good guests. Right. We've had Eric Church. Yep. We've had Seriously? Theo Pinson. We've had Marcus Page. We've had Mac Brown. We've had Rick Barnes. Who else have we had? J.R. Reed. J. Billis. J. Billis. Only the finest. You guys are hurting. <laughs> Only the <laughs> finest join us. Right. And that's Ryan why. Ryan Switzer. Ryan Switzer. That's right. That's why we have <laughs> Freddie Kiger with us today. Now, you may not immediately know Freddie, but I mean, if you're from Chapel Hill, you do know Freddie. Right. Huh. But you may not immediately be able to picture Freddie. Although, if you've watched college basketball in the triangle, you've seen Freddie before and you just don't know that you've seen Freddie. I'm that guy who is always, what, who is that guy <laughs> and what is he doing? Why, what is that Why guy is doing? he always there? Who, what incriminating pictures does he have that allows him to get exactly. these seats every game? Witness protection program. Adam, I was trying to think of the best way to introduce Freddie because he's a guy who has intimate knowledge of the Dean Smith years of Carolina basketball. He is an Emmy award-winning television producer. Wow, he is an elite historian when it comes to the Civil War. And he is about the most well-known and well-liked person oh in gosh. Chapel Hill. Are all these fair things to say? Nah, and Freddie, you can't talk yet. <laughs> I was- in fact, I'm going to turn down Freddie's mic so he can't say anything yet. All right, go ahead. Well, I was trying to think of how I would describe Freddie to someone who didn't know him or even know of his work. And what I decided I would go with would be this. A lot of people, when they walk into the room, you can visibly see other people go, oh, that guy. Yeah, that happens a lot when I walk into the room. Yeah, and I know that because that's what occurs (laughs) when I walk around. I see see that look. Whether in our homes or out, uh, out and about. Yeah, I'm familiar with that expression. 
But what's different about Freddie is that no matter where he walks in, yeah, that's true. You see people get so excited. Ah, Freddie! Ah, there's Freddie! Yep, that's right. It, it's never like, oh God, Kiger. <laughs> well, no, yeah, Freddie, you're, you're still, still you're still turned down. Still turned down. It, it may be a half hour from now before yeah. you get to talk, and 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 I will say. Also, in the historian vein, I can't remember if it was on pod or off pod that we talked about this. You t- I think you said it on. I think you was talked it about on pod. Yeah. Freddie showed around my kids in Washington D.C. and me and my yeah. wife uh, last year during the ACC tournament, and it was totally awesome. Yeah. He took us to Arlington and he took us to Ford's Theater, and they still talk about it. And and they even talk about it in class, which tells you it made a difference. And I can't remember what game it was, but there was some completely heartbreaking game that Carolina lost last year during the regular season. Mm. And then my wife and I saw Freddie at a uh, Chapel Hill breakfast establishment the mm-hmm. next morning. Mm-hmm. And he made us feel better by the yeah. time we walked out. Wow. We sat there and talked to him, and oh. he was down and we were down. But by the time we walked out, we felt like it would be okay. Wow. All right, Freddie, go. Now, what <laughs> What do you have for all that? All I'm saying is my mom does a heck of a press release. <laughs> <laughs> no, we really are excited. Uh, no, thanks, guys. I really uh, – well, you know how much I enjoy being around you guys as uh, as just friends. But but this, you know, professionally, wow, this what a treat. Thank you. Gosh, where, where should we even begin? Well, I think first, I mean, can you tell the people who don't know but, like, see you on TV and aren't sure what you're doing – what are you doing? <laughs> what am I doing? Um, more times than not, one, I'm wearing a sweater vest because that's the way my mother finds me. Yeah. <laughs> I keep telling my mom, Mom, if you're vest. watching, I'm wearing a sweater vest. <laughs> I settle on the scores table and I wear a sweater <laughs> vest so you can find me. But while I'm wearing the sweater vest and sitting courtside, I am keeping statistics, in-game statistics, and sharing research that via a um, – a headphone and a PL system, audio system, sending that information across the floor to usually my fellow statistician, John Madry, who then makes also it. Also a first-class gentleman. Oh, the, the well, the Solicitor General of the state of North Carolina, and, and as he is just beginning to step down to another, uh, uh, to another function or another job within the state government. But I'm sending that to him, and then he's sending it to the announcers, be it uh, Brent Musburger when he was still doing it, or Vital, or Jay Billis, or Carl Ravage, or Dan Schulman, or whoever. And that information is also going to the television truck and being turned into graphics that you would see at home. So, uh, who are, are do you like all those guys? You can tell us for real. I, you know what? I, I I there's only been one announcer that nobody really enjoyed working with. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Nobody. Really? Yeah. Mm. Um, you had to play a game with that individual who used to play at Wake Forest back in the early 60s. Was it the Mr. Cash game? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and and he, he, he was just a very difficult person to work with, and you quickly reached the point where many just decided, I'm not going to do anything to help him, even if he needs it. Wow. Mm. Ah. So everybody else, good. Dan Shulman, can't ask for a nicer. Mike Patrick, can't ask for a nicer person. Um, Jay Billis, wonderful. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. More times than not, nice people to work for who appreciate what you do, and therefore you want to work harder for them. Sure. I'd like to just throw in one quick comment. I support sweater vests. I own several. <laughs> I don't know why they have such a bad rap. Like, I, I don't get it. Do you, do you think that I can't afford one that has 
you know, material all the way down to my wrist. That's it. <laughs> when your mom half price sweater. Exactly. <laughs> when your mom turns on the coaches show, is she all perplexed? Like, there's three of you up there, yeah. Freddie. There's three people <laughs> with sweater vests on there. Well, bless her heart. My mom's 94. So if I, whenever I have a game in Winston Salem, I'll go home usually before or after and hang out with mom. You know, so uh, right there at two one 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 Tobacco Hill Road. Oh, that's where I was raised. And uh, between Rural Hall, King, and Tobaccoville, for those of you wondering, on the way to Pilot Mountain and wow. Mount Airy. And uh, I mean, she continues to ask me, is this game on television? I'm going, yes, Mom, yes. <laughs> if, if I'm there, Mom, it's going to be televised. That's a, whole, that's a whole reason why I'm here. She goes, okay. Well, how will I find you? Mom, I'm going to wear the sweater vest. Okay. <laughs> Wasn't Jeff Denny from Rural Hall? Is I taught him? Jeff Denny how to swim at the North Forsyth Swim Club. How? <laughs> See, that's the kind of stuff. That's why Freddie's here. He was a great. He was a. Was gr- he a good swimmer? Yes, he was. All I needed was ten sessions. Boom. <laughs> I, I told Adam I always used to like Jeff Denny when I was a little kid because he wore number three, and I had just decided I was going to like whoever wore number three. Okay. And so I was a big Jeff Denny fan. Well, I wore number three when I was playing industrial league well, softball. It's just I just knew. Well, I that, instinctively yeah. knew that I was going to like Freddie from the right. beginning. How about that? Um, okay. Let's let's tackle the Carolina basketball angle first. Okay. So I said in leading up to this that you kind of had very – personal knowledge of of coach smith's time here tell everybody kind of what you did while coach smith was uh was the head coach here well i was very blessed jones to uh um, be appointed to coach smith's statistician staff as a student here at the university and i kept the assist turnover chart which was a lot of defensive stats and coaches assist meaning that if I passed the ball to Adam, but Adam was fouled and was not able to convert the layup, if he went to the line, Phil Ford or John Kuster or Walter Davis or whomever got a coach's assist. That assist led to someone going to the line. I do believe the NCAA should investigate that, and if it contributes to points, somebody knocks down a couple of free throws. I agree with that. Yeah. Why would they do that? You should give an assist. I agree with that. So that was for a couple of years. And then the final two years that I kept statistics, and this is during the 74 through 77 seasons, so I can tell you what it is like to go to a locker room after you've just lost the national championship game. Mm. Uh, You guys probably can relate to that as well, sadly. Um, But that was, of course, in 77. For two years, Coach Smith, and this is where he was, I kept a – stat sheet that he devised for every whistle blown in a game I put down when the whistle was blown time on the clock score which official by name made the call what was the call and reaction I averaged anywhere from 95 to 100 entries a game coach Smith wanted to see if perhaps there might be trends When an official walked in the door, was the game going to be called more closely, more touch fouls on the perimeter or in the paint? Did this guy tend to call more blocking or charge fouls? He wanted to see if there was any kind of statistical analysis or any kind of trends, depending on the personnel who came out in the striped shirts per game. 
Every game I kept, I turned it in personally to him. He would watch the game film with my sheet, probably watching the same game for five or six times uh, with other stat sheets and other, other uh, you know, coaches, defensive players, and all that kind of thing. After two complete seasons, he came to me and said, ah, Fred, we're not going to keep this anymore. I, I, I couldn't find anything. He could, you know, the best compliment you can give to the officials. There were no trends. There did not seem to be anything that led him to think one way or the other. And yet, for two solid seasons, he wanted it tracked just to see if there might be something. That's where he was. The game to him was more than X's and O's. It was an incredible set for analysis for looking far beyond just setting a pick or getting the ball down to the post or changing sides of the floor, what have you. Have you ever seen anyone or worked with anyone or as many games as you've been around who came close to that level as Coach Smith? Not in that aspect. Not in that statistical analysis. Now, you know, he was a huge uh, mathematician. I mean, he, he was a renaissance man in many respects. Loved to talk about religion. But at school, if I remember correctly, he was a huge math guy. Hmm. So this was something that he tailored to his trade, if you will. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I'll never forget. I'm sitting down there getting ready to keep uh, my assist turnover stat sheet. And, of course, it included loose balls. It included, you know, the coach's assist and what have you. And uh, Coach Guthridge came down. Coach Smith wants to see you in his office. I was like, oh, boy, because that was still at the time where I didn't know if I should remove my shoes or <laughs> kneel as I came <laughs> in. So I stepped in, and Coach Smith sat down, and he had kind of a mapped out what he wanted to see and explained it to me, and off we went. It was pretty cool. Weren't you there for 8 points and 17 seconds? I was keeping statistics for 8.17 seconds. So for people who don't know, and I – I don't think there's many of those people listening. Carolina was behind, trailed Duke by eight points. 17, 17 seconds to go at Carmichael Auditorium. No three-point line. No three-point line. And what what was that like? If everybody who says they saw that game, Adam, were in the building, we would have rivaled the size of the city of Charlotte's population. <laughs> Place was emptying. Woody had already spelled out for his radio broadcast what this would do to the Heels going into the ACC tournament. I'm keeping a stat sheet. I don't think we've got much of a prayer at all. The aisles are filled with people leaving Carmichael and headed out to the intramural fields, now hooker fields where cars are allowed to park. They're getting out of Dodge. And then a steal and another steal and a foul, and a missed one-and-one. One. Baseball pass to Walter Davis, who didn't go to the spot where he was supposed to have gone, and yet turned and let the shot go. And when he released, his follow-through trailed off to left to right. He let it go, and I'm sitting courtside at Carmichael and going, this then got a prayer. But that little spin 
from his follow-through? That ball hit the right top of the glass, the backboard, and then kissed straight. It hit nothing. Right through the net. Just like 23 and a half degrees Mother Earth. (laughs) (laughs) We get four seasons because of that 23 and a half degree tilt. And Walter's rotation put that through. And I... That's the second time that I thought the roof in Carmichael was going to come down. It was unbelievable. Because many of the people who had gone to their cars kept hearing this incredible roar. And so they're coming back in the building. But all that also gave us is a chance to go into overtime, which I believe we went down by either four or six points even in the overtime to come back to win that game. But... um, Oh, you, you, you pick up the phone and you call Mitch Kupchak right now in the Lakers office. You Let's call, do it. <laughs> call, call Kupchak at him. <laughs> He'll tell you today. That's still his greatest sports moment. And I will tell you that being up at Maryland when uh, Mitch was in his senior season and oh, Mo Howard, John Lucas, I mean, Maryland was unbelievable. Lefty had already seen me out in the uh, concourse at the uh, in uh, College Park and asked me to step out with him to the floor where he nodded to someone, and then he walked out, and the band struck up, hail to the chief, and <laughs> Lefty did the Richard Nixon thing with two peace signs thrust into the air. Student body who had been there for 10 hours went absolutely nuts, and then as he walked back by me to his locker room, he went, we're ready for you, boy. <laughs> and I went, okay, coach. <laughs> so we're up. It's close game, second half. <laughs> coach Guthers came down and says, Coach Smith wants you to do something. I'm like, okay. So I jump up from the bench, put a couple of dirty towels down. My job was to stand behind our huddle and catch stuff. <laughs> the Maryland fans were so kind about wanting to share their concession food. <laughs> Half-eaten hot dogs, oranges, jelly beans. I caught every coin currency imaginable from pennies, dimes, nickels, one half-dollar piece. Wow. And the language at Maryland, (laughs) how shall we say, um, murdered the King's English and oftentimes went into areas of four-letter words that did not make you feel welcome in College Park. But I do remember at one point the barrage stopped long enough for me, and we were tied two or three minutes left, and I looked into the huddle, and Coach Smith is down there going, ah, boys, isn't this fun? And I will recall Maryland was the only place I was ever scared. I mean, actually scared. I relaxed. Heck, I'm just the manager, uh, or rather the statistician, and helping out with the managers. But he would present this just, uh, this is exactly where we want to be. We've got this. Isn't this fun? And we went out, went into four corners. And whenever we went into four corners, lefty, bless his heart. (laughs) I love him. (laughs) But it was... It was like trying to tackle calculus. It was over. <laughs> uh, um, good news, by the way. Maryland's still the exact same way. 
Oh. <laughs> but uh, now it's just Penn State and Iowa who get to uh, deal with it. Um, I've asked this question before to – actually, I asked it to our last guest, George Carl, who uh, joined us. Um, it seems to me, as someone who was not alive during this time period, that <laughs> those teams – Particularly in that like mid seventies, right? Exactly right. the time period you're talking about. Yeah, well, yeah. They had some, or at least let's put it this way: Carolina fans felt as strongly, personally towards those teams as maybe ever. And I'm not saying that there isn't passion or sure. connection now. Um, it's just different now. Obviously, it's it's just a different time. What what was it about those teams? and that era, and those players that seem to connect on such a personal level, in your opinion, to Carolina fans? Well, one, we were on television nationally every two or three times a week. So when we were on television, or when people did come to Carmichael, there really was an effort to To get close to a team that they didn't have a chance to get close to necessarily three and four and five times during a week because every game was going to be on television. So when you came to Carmichael, it was a chance to to get to know someone, to get to know a team, to get to know individuals, and you probably made greater effort because you wouldn't have the chance to sit at home and not have to drive and look for a parking place and worry about getting to the restroom without standing in a line. You wanted to be there. A ticket in Carmichael when there was only 10,000 seats was a precious commodity. Mm-hmm. And then, too, we had some very charismatic players. Phil Ford transcended the floor. The second Walter Davis hit that shot as a freshman, he was sweet D. We had personalities and people that made great effort to be more than just a basketball player. And George Carl was one of those. I mean, Rick Brewer tells the story. He was the sports information officer at Carolina. You know, they had to hire student assistants to handle his fan mail. There, <laughs> there wasn't as much access via ESPN.com, via Fox Sports South. So there was a little bit of an air of mysticism made you a little more desirous to get to know these players by coming to the games, by staying until the game was over, by being so involved. Um, I mean, I love the Smith Center, but, you know, we lost something. We lost something when we moved into the Smith Center. Mm-hmm. We, did, we lost a little bit of that um, that intimate feel that one might have uh, when you're 10,000 seats as opposed to 21, 22,000 seats. And, guys, I wish you could have experienced the electricity in that building. It would be so loud sometimes, it would hurt. It was so cool. The game that we had first with Tom McMillan, who at the last second, for those of you who remember at home, who chose to go to Maryland and not the University of North Carolina as he had committed. Holy smoke, that first game, another one of those moments that just was incredible in its intensity. Phil Ford's senior year when he scored some 30, 32 points. 
career high. Unbelievable, powerful moments and the type of moments and the type of electricity that made time stand still. You remembered it. You filed them away. And you pulled them out, man. You pulled them out down the road. Why are you so awesome, Fred? No, no, no. no <laughs> I just, it, it was personal. It, I, I remember it so well. It was personal. And you know what? That's the way everybody felt inside that arena. Yeah. You, you know what it is, though? Hmm. That, that's Freddie's time. Like, we've talked about our era oh, yeah. time. Our wheelhouse, yeah. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And, and that makes a lot of sense, Adam. And, and our whole thing is we think that everybody's got their own wheelhouse time. Like, sure. my wheelhouse time is probably, I'd say, 1991 to, like, 98. That's, like, my wheel. Those are, like, my. Vince Carter and all right. those guys. Yeah, yeah. And, but, and even before that, you know, yeah. Eric and George Lynch and all sure. those. I mean, Rick Fox, Hubert Davis, kind of at the, at the beginning part of it. Adams maybe is a little, because Adams older than me, obviously. Um, <laughs> By a lot. <laughs> yeah, Adams may be a couple years earlier than that. But, but, but I mean, I think everybody, when you're in that, you have that time period that you just remember the most. And that doesn't devalue the current day or any other time. It's just the one that's the most. Well, think about music. Yeah. You remember those tunes when you were in school, when you were in college. You have so many memories that, that wrap themselves around that entire time period. And that's not to say that in the 90s, I didn't, I w- I didn't marvel at Fence Carter, who needed, you know, needed pilot's license sometimes when he took off. I'm, I've got Hugh Morton's photograph of him flying in the air for that. Yeah, we just talked about that. Dunk windmill that. dunk. Mm-hmm. And when Mr. Morton looked at me, who had taken so many pictures all the way back to the 40s, and said, that's my favorite photograph, and then he gave it to me and signed it. I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That was cool. Adam, you had a question, I think? I've got many questions, (laughs) but I thought I would go with this one. So another thing people might not know is that we've got two of the three people – well, we've got two people sitting here who were responsible for what I think is one of the best videos Carolina's done in, like, the video board era the video about coach smith oh and, and i'm not one of those two so that only leaves two well you but but you wrote the words and and that man right across there put the images right, and the I'm music yeah, well, Joe, Adam, thank you. did the pictures and so i'm wondering when you when they came to you and said freddie we need to do this video it's gonna be a big thing huh. how did you sit down and kind of collect all your your thoughts and your memories and put them down onto paper in a way that you thought would convey what you were trying to get across. Well, you're very kind to ask, and I'll take this moment and say what you do repeatedly, over and over. You're a fine writer, my friend. You capture a lot of emotion. You capture a lot of things that uh, captures the spirit of, uh, of Carolina basketball and the people that play it and the people that enjoy it. So kudos to you, thank and thank you. you f- uh, that makes your, your compliment even uh, more deeply appreciated. But, you know, as as you remember, we were all sitting around being a part of the Centennial Committee, and I was very flattered to be a part. Um, I had done a great amount of writing, fact-checking research for the ESPN Sports Century Series, which today, 3030, is based upon. You know, we had counted down the top 100 greatest athletes in North America. We had done stories that were just wonderful pieces to put together. And so I assume that that's the reason why the committee turned to me. But uh, I didn't get a whole lot of sleep the first couple of days because how do you capture 
I, my, I remember, well, how long do you guys want this? Here's a man who has coached for 36 years. Yeah. He's won 879 ball games, two national championships, has impacted lives not only on his team but for managers to people to fans to the game itself. How long do you guys want this? <laughs> oh, five minutes? I was like, holy smoke. When you have that kind of time frame, I remember thinking, I'm going to pick three or four moments that I thought in some fashion captured Coach Smith. The induction as an ACC legend, which I know several people maybe didn't grab it, but I'm sitting over there going, this whole arena of every school being represented who used to hate Carolina basketball and loathed Losing to Carolina is standing and giving this man a long, long standing ovation. That to me said, wow, unbelievable respect. I thought about the naming of the building, how he didn't want it. I tried to think of things that just transcended X's and O's in the game of basketball per se. And I made the conscious decision, Adam, to think I am not including one stat. I'm not putting one number in there. Because he wouldn't have wanted to have, to have heard it. And his life was more than 879 in 36 years and two national championships. He was a teacher. And I was blessed to sit in his so-called classroom, as so many were. And so I tried to approach it from an admiring student understanding and respecting and in awe of the impact that this man had. Now, I had the good fortune to have Jones over there who was very patient with me, who put together hundreds of images and footage and then had the perfect music bed. And then we had other folks who edited and put it all together. So, Adam, thank you for asking. But uh, like in many things, great amount of teamwork but you know what? I'm pretty hard on myself. When that aired, it was one time when I stopped and went, wow, I, I'm pretty pleased with that. I like what we had done. I was going to ask you all, did you all know when you finished it that we hit that one out of the park? Or did, did it take seeing it on the board in front of people? Um, I think you always get a better, this is my personal opinion, Freddie is a thousand times more qualified to answer this question than me. Um, I think it it is more when you see it with everybody else. Like, you get a pretty good feel, and at some point, particularly when you work on something over and over and over, and you see the same cliffs or you hear the same words or the same music, you kind of mm -hmm. you lose a little bit of the big picture part of it because you're in the minutia of it. You're in the details of it, and... Um, so you think you've done a good job, obviously, or you hope you have. Um, but then when you see it and you kind of – I rem, I mean, for me, that one and the 100 Years video, I remember the response that that 100 Years video got when we played it in the Smith Center from the people in the stands. And that's when I, I was like, wow, all right, yeah, good job. That's something that people – and so I think that more, when, mm -hmm. you, when you realize how other people kind of impact or how it impacts other people – to me, that's when you get that feeling. I don't know if Freddie agrees. No, no, no. no. I, I completely understand. And I do remember, Adam and Jones, that I wrote that piece 
I also decided I'm writing this straight from the heart. And so when you allow yourself to do that, there's always a little bit of concern. There's a little bit of a fear that maybe it will be disappointing or it didn't go where people thought that it should go. So, yeah, I was a little bit of trepidation. But like Jones, the night that we aired it for the centennial celebration and it got such a warm response and Jones was so kind to uh, pass along credit that particular evening, that made me feel wonderful. But, guys, when that was aired for the funeral of Coach Smith, for two weeks, all I did was return emails and phone calls thanking people who hadn't heard it before or perhaps did not have the same event to latch that video to, and now he was gone. It was overwhelming. It was unbelievable. And that's perhaps the first time when I really thought, Jones, we did something that might stand for a while. That was pretty cool. Man, I like these podcasts where we just talk about how awesome we are. <laughs> these are the best ones. These are the best ones where we just talk about how good we are. Oh. Um, Freddie, well, first of all, I've already determined that Freddie has to come and be a multiple. Like, he has to. Yeah. He, he's only the second one to reach that status. We can't possibly get everything that we want to talk to Freddie about in, no. in an acceptable amount of time. Well, I'd be happy to come oh, back. Oh, I, well, I mean, I'd sit here all afternoon, but at some point, um, at some point, we do have to. We'll, we'll have you back. That's well, thank you. End I, of that. That would, that would be fun. Um, I would be interested in kind of how you view because now, you, obviously, you are a Carolina person. I think sure. that's fair to say. Yeah, yeah. But now you also are very involved with other teams. I mean, in, in the games with other teams. Sure. And how do you kind of view Carolina basketball now, ACC basketball now? Just kind of how how is your role in all of that, considering the history that you have with the Tar Heels? Does that make sense? No, that's a, it's a perfect question. But because of my ESPN work and because of the way sports broadcasting is going now with the REMI, R-E-M-I, remote engineering, everybody's trying to save money. Which, by the way, I hate that. Oh. I, I know. I mean, and I'm I, with you. And I think most I'm of the broadcasters you. hate uh, it. Oh, they don't like that? Yeah. I mean, Doris Burke? Dave O'Brien, how do you capture the feel of an arena, a crowd, teams, when you're sitting in Bristol, Connecticut, or in Charlotte, North Carolina, and you've been asked also not to let on right. that you're not there? It's, it's, it's tough. There's people who don't know what y'all are talking about right oh, now. Oh, yeah. It, sometimes here lately, like in the last two or three years. Yeah, I'd say in the last two or three years. And it's going to be the trend more and more. Yeah. ESPN's done games in which the the play-by-play and the color people are not at the game site. Whereas Freddie just said, in Bristol or in Charlotte or somewhere. Neither the producer, the director, the graphics, tape. Mm -hmm. The only people at a true Remy would be the official statistician, which is my role, audio, camera, several cameras, and that's it. Now, there's a different thing called a Remy Pro, and that means that the producer, director, tape, and graphics are somewhere else. 
but the announcers will be there with a talent statistician and an official statistician and a stage manager, and so you have several more. It's not so much for people saying, well, they're going to save money by not traveling people and putting everybody up in the hotels. That's only a small portion of it. The big portion where ESPN saving money is they're not having to rent a television truck. Mm-hmm. That's the big money that they are saving. Yep. But because of that, to get back to your original question, I do have the opportunity, because of where we live, we get to see a lot of great, incredible basketball. And so I go to Wake Forest. I'll go to NC State. I'll go over to Duke. And, of course, I'll walk to work, which I love to do here for the Smith Center. So to be quite honest, yeah, everybody knows where I went to school. And most people know for whom I worked. And they know that outside of my professional demeanor, where my, where my heart is. Mm-hmm. But I have made it a point that if I'm at Wake Forest, I'm going to be professional. If I'm over at NC State, I'm going to be professional. And so when I'm over there, and I was recently at NC State, and in Wake Forest, and at Duke, I'm as home there doing my job, working with their stat crews, with their official scorer, with their sports media people, sports information people, with their ushers and what have you. And, in fact, have gotten to the point where you don't, they may not know my name, but you'll have players that will, oh, you're here too, you know, will acknowledge. And uh, so it really is nice to go everywhere and do feel like that there is a welcome mat. Uh but they all know where I went to school. They all know where I uh, spent a lot of time. Because of that, I wonder if there's anybody, because, as you said, everybody knows for whom you worked. Right. Has there been anybody who surprised you who's expressed some curiosity about what that was like or somebody who you didn't think maybe knew as much about either Carolina basketball or Coach Smith and said, hey, I know you worked for him. What was that like? Yeah. Particularly those who have come along, Adam, um, a little later on. Um, you know, when Coach Smith was coaching, people wanted to beat him bad. <laughs> they wanted to win. And they thought, like others who still coach, that perhaps a double standard existed. And so there was a lot of inbuilt um, material for envy and rivalry and what have you but now that we've gotten past that there's a lot of players there's a lot of assistant coaches and head coaches who occasionally will sit uh, you know a couple hours before the game when they're not focusing in on what the job is to be that particular night and they'll ask about stuff like that I remember Skip Prosser and I had an incredible conversation one time Coach Prosser before his most tragic and timely demise, he would go out and sit on the end of one bench in an empty Joel Coliseum and just kind of gather his thoughts. And I made the point of walking by, and I knew something about him. I knew he was an old high school history teacher, and I alluded to it. Next thing I know, he would ask me to join him, and we would sit there, We'd talk history, we'd talk high school, we'd talk education. And then he had asked me about some of the things Coach would do, Coach Smith. Well, how did Coach Smith handle, so so what was it like going into, and it was fun to have someone 
who had the distance to be able to appreciate what Coach Smith did and be curious about and even want to borrow this and that for their own program. Oh, I had a basketball player that played for Wake Forest. I'll, I won't call his name. But he said, golly, Pete, every time we got in a close ball game with you guys and Coach Smith, you guys knew you were going to win, and those of us sitting on the weight bench knew you were going to win. <laughs> that is a that, – that to me still stands as a powerful admission of the aura that Coach Smith and Carolina basketball teams had. I liken that to the Duke-Wake Forest game of only a week or so ago when mm -hmm. Luke Kennard scored 3,000 points in the second half. You know, he scored 30, 10 for 10 from the floor, 5 for 5 from 3. And Wake went into the tank in the last two minutes and 11 seconds. They couldn't have thrown it in the ocean. Yep. Everybody went T-Rex arms. <laughs> the difference, one team expected to find a way to win. And the other team was just hoping to win. And that is a mentality that goes far beyond one player, two players. It affects an entire team, and it affects a coaching staff. I wish we had a camera uh, in here and make this a video <laughs> pod just so we could get – I mean, Freddie's stories are awesome, obviously. Yeah, you're kind. Well, but they're even better when you're yeah. in here with them. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, in an answer earlier, you said for the second time ever you thought the roof was going to come off Carmichael uh, when Walter Davis – Oh, you know, there's several. I, I can think of several. What, when was the first? Um, the first was the introduction – or. When Tom McMillan first came to Carmichael after snubbing Carolina, right. I still remember all of us in the student section, and the place was packed, and it was hot. Oh, my gosh. It was a sauna, even in the dead of winter. Nobody said a word. Throughout the entire Maryland introductions, it was as quiet as a church. And then when the Carolina introductions I got chills. I still get chills. It was so loud. The eight points, 17 seconds. When Walter Davis's shot careened off that right corner of the glass and went through the hoop, I, it was unbelievable. A veritable cacophony of sound. <laughs> it was incredible. Uh, Michael Jordan Steele. 83, right? And the slam. Another instance when I thought the roof was going to cave in. Just, uh, but, you know, that was it. I mean, <laughs> as a student at Carolina, that's where a lot of concerts were. I went to see Black Sabbath, Jethro Tull. I went to see Fleetwood Mac, Chicago. I went to see Stephen Stills. But if you didn't have a seat on the floor and you were up in the stands, forget it. John Denver called it an institutional bathroom. Because <laughs> it just went up and bounced all over the place, the sound. But for basketball games, that just meant that whatever was 70 decibels was probably 120 decibels. And Carmichael itself, like Cameron, like Reynolds Coliseum, was a weapon in itself. Who's the best player you ever saw play? Ooh. Wow. I'm not talking about individual performance because I think that's probably something different. I just mean the best total player that you saw play or have seen play. And that can, oh it doesn't have to be gosh. when you were at Carolina. 
You can, that can be. Are you talking about just Jones, a, a Carolina player? It just in general. Anybody. I know that's hard. Well, I have to say there's several. Lenny Bias was pretty doggone good. Yeah. Michael Jordan, we did. We only saw glimpses of that. We didn't right. see the the NBA Michael Jordan, despite the fact that he had incredible talent. Um, Vince Carter, pretty doggone good athlete. Yeah. I'm gonna have to come back and think on that. There's just there's so many. There's so many. David Thompson was pretty doggone good. Mm-hmm. I was never a big Ralph Sampson fi- fan. I know he won what two National Players of the Year. Never won a national championship. Never won an ACC regular season championship. Never won an ACC tournament championship. That's the beauty of a Coach Smith system for a team. That's the beauty of a Michael Jordan who goes to a Chicago Bulls. When you find a player that elevates everyone around you to play harder, better, to fine-tune the role that you've been asked to fulfill, whether it be seventh or eighth or ninth man coming off the bench, that to me is greatness when you can transcend your desire, your hustle, your passion, and everybody else is into it and catches it. I mean, ask Michael Jordan with some of the guys he had to play with for the Bulls. Mm -hmm. Um, You know who I used to respect a great deal? Because of how hard he worked, Mitch Kupchak. Mitch Kupchak. How do you not like George Lynch? Being a point guard in the Carolina system, tough. Phil Ford, unbelievable. Derek Phelps, Felton. We've, we've been blessed. We've been blessed over the years. I just hope that people – see, that's part of the problem that now it's too accessible. Golly, Pete. you know That is – I agree with that 100%. Everything is too accessible. Back in the 70s and 80s, there was an era – there was a little bit of an era of mysticism that added to the aura of, of star power and of talent because you didn't get a chance to see him all the time. You didn't get to see all the warts, if you will. Oh, Super Bowl Sundays? There used to be national television before the Super Bowl. There would be a Super Bowl game, and more times than not, it was Carolina-Maryland or Carolina State or somebody, and it was turned into this the first half of Super Bowl Sunday. Heck, now, you know, we, we play Sisters of the Poor, and it's on national television. Yep. And I think we lose a little bit of the of the star power sheen of the of the aura of we don't get to see him that much, so we're going to grab hold and embrace this 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 opportunity that we have. Now I'm not, you know, it's it's the times, it's the times, and of course it's a great recruiting tool. Hey, if you come to play at North Carolina, if you come to play at Duke, or you come to play at Wake Forest, you're going to be on national television x amount of times. You're going to have a chance to showcase your talent. Repeatedly. I remember in the 80s, somebody from NBC at the time I was working with, because they had the rights to the ACC, particularly the ACC tournament, along with Raycom or Jefferson Pilot, 
But golly, Pete, sports programming, it's too saturated. The whole market's too saturated. Hello? <laughs> that was in the 80s. Yep. Now you can't get a hangnail that may escape ESPN.com. And I think we lose a little bit uh, because we are too familiar. But that's okay. You know, it is what it is. To that point, the ACC tournament now is enormous. And there's still, I mean, there's still, I mean, that Virginia-Carolina game last year in the championship game was a yeah. spectacular game, high energy, kind of an old-time feel to it. Does it does it make you a little sad that that event is different than it used to be? No, there's no question. Now, that being said, there is within uh, Jones and Adam the fact that, okay, you rolled into the uh, ACC tournament with only one or two losses in the entire season and you stumble. You still got a chance to, you, to, right. to live and fight another day. Now, you want to talk about pressure? Yep. I, I mean, you want to talk about pressure? You ask Lenny Rosenbluth and you ask those guys, Joe Quigg and all those guys, roll in undefeated and lose one game and you wash the jerseys. Talk to Lefty Drizel, who still has not gotten over that 74 loss to NC State. I mean, it's over, which is incredible, the amount of pressure. Uh, the 1975 ACC tournament, which was, if I remember correctly, the last time that that happened, uh, the last time that you had a chance, mm-hmm. that you had to win the tournament. I think the, the, all the games were decided by, like, two or three points. All the games. You could cut tension with a knife. I mean, it was incredible as far as pressure, pride, and the ability to catch fire for three consecutive days. And if you didn't, you wonder what might have been. That's why I think about the 1957 team. Um, I mean... They should have lost that game to Wake Forest. Mm-hmm. The toughest team, Eleni has told me on several instances, that the toughest team they played all season was Wake Forest. And they had to play those guys four times that year. And the games were always separated by just, you know, one or two or three points. But today, coaches aren't going to allow it to change. They're not going to allow it to change. CBS and the television folks, TNT or TBS, are not going to want that to change because it's, it's revenue. And if you're a coach, you want an opportunity in your contract to say, well, if we get to the NCAA tournament, well, now you've got – all you got to be is one of the top 64 teams in America to make your way. Mm-hmm. Then we're not going to see that go back. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised to see it expanded. So if you fill the team and you're part of the 216 <laughs> – You got a 50-50 <laughs> yeah, shot of getting in there soon enough. And you start playing the tournament in uh, January, you know. But I mean, it won't get to that point, but it's – we're not going to see. We're not going to return to that. And so I remember every year when we'd get close to the ACC tournament. No matter how excited you were and how how much you knew you had a great basketball team, if you stumbled one night, it was unbelievable. It was gut wrenching every game. So today, if North Carolina goes into the tournament in Brooklyn and has a bad game, hey. You wash the jerseys, but you're going to play again. You're going to you're, you live to fight another day. Um, we're not going to see a reversal of that, but it was quite quite 
the atmosphere, but I won't say it was a healthy one. <laughs> Adam, do you have something? We have this uh, we have this conversation on the pod where I have this crazy idea okay. that there needs to be a Carolina basketball convention. Okay. So when that happens 100 years from now, <laughs> you're, you're going to be part of that, just, uh, just to let you know if you're – because can you imagine – People coming to just like come come into a room to hear Freddie no. tell stories about Carolina. Well, basketball. I can imagine it happening. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, because we're doing it right now. Yeah, I'll but be. That that's what the Carolina basketball convention is for. Stuff like that. It doesn't exist. But that would be kind of fun. That'd be like kind of the Star Trek conventions. You know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> people to come in dressed like Coach Smith or Coach Guthridge. Yeah, that's and right. It, wear your plaid sports coats from the eighties. Exactly. Somebody yeah. will come in as Mrs. Norman Sloan and sing the national anthem. See, Freddie's getting excited about it. He's getting on board. Adam, when you start organizing, let me know. So you've you've seen kind of the full gamut of the Carolina-Duke basketball rivalry. Since 72. When did you see it start to become kind of what we know it as today? Great question. And, and what's the difference in what it is today versus Great what question. it was in the Phil Ford era? Duke was not very good in the 70s. So, in fact, if you take a look and you analyze the series – as to which decade Duke was down the most, it's it's in the 70s, up into 78 when Duke had that run to the national championship, losing to uh, Goose Givens and Kentucky in the national championship game. But uh, up until that point, uh, it was pretty much a, a one-sided affair. So Duke may have been a rival, but they were not the premier rival. It was NC State because of David Thompson and Tommy Burleson and Monty Tal and all of those guys. It's when Shashevsky came to town. And the early 80s, when we heard the Shashevsky bark, there's a double standard. There's a double standard in the league. Uh, Coach K came from a background that when you move into a neighborhood, you don't necessarily uh, join the homeowners association. You may light bottle rockets and send them to the homeowners association. <laughs> you... You know, that's his style. That's the way he was raised. You know, you, you, you rattle the chains. You shake the cages. And so his method of calling out Coach Smith for a double standard and, and his battle to bring Duke back to preeminence, that's where it caught fire to what, Adam, we know of today. Uh, now you guys will remember back in the, uh, around the turn of the century, 21st century, uh, when we were in the middle of some coaching changes, we weren't competitive. Even the Duke students picked that up. Yeah. It just wasn't the same. And that's the thing that I think needs to be. Once you get outside those fans wearing either royal blue or Carolina blue so that you can have bragging rights around the coffee urn or you can make the phone call after the game is over or send the text, you start talking to the coaches, you start talking to the players who have been a part of this rivalry, there's respect for one another. And it is occasionally, sometimes I'll run into a Carolina and a Duke fan, and I tell them this if they don't admit to it. We need the other to be good. That's what makes that rivalry so special. Whenever I was traveling around with ESPN Saturday Night Football and I would wind up in Palo, Palo Alto or in... Uh, Seattle or uh, Pasadena or in Tucson or what have you. And the first time anybody knew I was from Chapel Hill, the first thing out of their mouth would usually be, tell me about Duke Carolina. 
It is it's Red Sox Yankees. It's Steelers Browns at one time. It's Cowboys Redskins, but it's on it is it is college's best showcase because of the excellence. Because of the incredible excellence over an extended period of time. And that's before Coach Smith and Coach Williams and Coach K. I mean, Vic Bubis was a pretty good coach during the late 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of – there's a reason why Duke and Carolina are the third and fourth winningest basketball programs in the nation. And that, indeed, is what makes this particular particular rivalry so intense. But there is no question. When Coach K came in and elbowed his way back into the block to be a part of the ACC coach's neighborhood – the rivalry took off. And uh, sometimes I'll even go so far to say in a direction that I wasn't comfortable with because it really turned ugly. Like when? Early 80s. Hey, guys, I, there's some things I could tell you that I heard along the sidelines coming out of the mouths of some folks that I can't even repeat on air. Uh, and we can say anything on here. Well, <laughs> there's, there was there was some stuff I heard that my – I never heard Coach Smith curse. Sarcasm was his weapon. If he wanted to get you, he'd make some sarcastic remark and it'd stick in your crawl and he'd challenge you in that respect. Um, Coach K uh, challenges by uh, getting in faces – uh, and this is not questioning his basketball coaching ability. He is a, an incredible tactician. Oh, there's no question. Uh, but he challenges by uh, getting into your kitchen, so to speak, and emptying the drawers. Um, <laughs> you got to be a tough ball player to play for him. Uh, you have to have a lot of great mental toughness to play. Uh, and if you don't, it's easy to lose confidence and to – and to, and to cower. Again, there's so many stories where players have been challenged, and more times than not, they responded. And then there were those who didn't. Cherokee Parks is probably the greatest example of a Duke player who did not necessarily respond to that motivation. And that's not to say that we didn't have Carolina players that did not respond occasionally uh, to a particular uh, coaching style or what have you. But... Um, It's it, It's tough. It's tough to ask an 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old player to be put in that three-ring circus with everybody watching if Grayson Allen was playing in the 1970s and 80s. It would not be. The, the poor kid now... Is a lightning rod. He's on how many Twitter feeds? He's on every streaming thing. You're you're under you're in a glass bubble, and everyone gets to see it. Everyone gets to see it. I mean, we could do this forever, but let me. I'll let me ask one more question, then I'll let Adam ask one more question. (laughs) This has been fun, and we'll be done. Thanks. No, it's good. Um, Okay, so you also have an enormous passion for the Civil War. And, and and as I said at the beginning, an elite historian. Well, you're kind. Thank you. So if I am young Jones walking around and I'm <laughs> like, hmm, 
I might want to learn some more about the Civil War, but I'm not sure if I want to learn more about the Civil War. Can I get the Freddie Kiger summary of this? This is why you should be interested in this, and this is why this is why this should be important. Well, that's a great question. Even though it wasn't really a question, it's more of a lead. Well, no, I mean, the American Civil War. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Yeah. The American Civil War is probably one of the most, if not the most important, defining moments in this nation. We're still wrestling with many of the issues that created a circumstance that allowed us to kill seven hundred thousand Americans. States versus federal rights, civil rights. We're still trying to come to grips with a lot of that. And I will say this, there's a lot of people like, history, are you kidding me? comes down to who that junior high school or mi middle school or high school teacher, the impact that, that, that he or she may have. If you study history and all it is is memorization, names and dates, I don't blame you for being bored. The last five letters of the word history is story. And every time I'm planning a lecture, as I am right now about the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, a Revolutionary War battle that I'll give in the next week, I try to tell it in the form of a story. If you talk about it in the form of a story, if you talk about it anecdotally, it sticks. They're not historical figures. They're human beings, and they are no different from, from us except they were placed at a time and a position in history and in perhaps a position in government or in the military that all of a sudden made their normal life, their common life, quite uncommon. And it's the reason why I am fascinated by figures like U.S. Grant and Abraham Lincoln and Stonewall Jackson and others because they were human beings. And had there not been that incredible event, that tragic event they would have been footnotes but they're not and there are lessons to be learned and there are stories to be told and although it's 150 years ago their story and their message and their lives are still relevant for us today and I'll tell you folks we are in the middle of events Don't stick your head in the sand. You need to be quite aware of what's going on because these are times that um, give reason for people to, to think, to look about internationally, globally, nationally, state, and to question where are we and where we're going. If you don't care, then prepare for the consequences. Hey, Adam, no big deal. Ask Freddie one more question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. I didn't mean to go heavy on you there. The ones I had don't seem quite sufficient <laughs> What's your favorite well, food? <laughs> <laughs> well, so I don't want to ask you something about the Olympics because I think we could do a whole podcast with you about oh, the gosh. Olympics because you've yeah. done a ton of stuff. Yeah, so I, I, so I, have, I have some questions about that, but I'm not going to ask them. Okay. So 
we've asked you about a lot of things that you've gotten to be a part of, just incredible things. Well, thank you. When When's the last time that while it was happening, you thought, I can't believe I'm actually getting oh, to be here That's a great this. question. That's a great question. I've been so blessed to have a chance to have done so many things with so many wonderful people at so many wonderful events. But I'd have to think that in 1988, I had just been let go from the Tar Heel Sports Network. I'm a trivia question, by Only the, way. the best on the Tar Heel Sports <laughs> Network, Freddie. Sorry, pal. I was, I know. I had been with the Tar Heel Sports Network for 10 years and had been on air with Woody for football for four seasons. So I'm the trivia question. Who was the Tar Heel Sports Network analyst before Mick Mixon? It's really all been downhill since then. <laughs> no, 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 no. But anyway, I worked with a bunch of people at WCHL, 5,000-watt radio station under Jim Hevner. Here are the people that I worked with for Countdown to Kickoff. Jim Lampley, who did okay. Mick Mixon, who did okay. Skip Foreman, who went on to be AP uh, writer and the head of the AP here in the area, Associated Press. Guy by the name of Dragan Mihaljevic, who's only now a 60 Minutes producer, who's won about 14 Emmys and counting. And then there was a skinny white boy from Rural Hall, North Carolina, who Ron Stutz gave a chance to do some things, and Jim Hevner gave some chance to do things. Well, all that as a background, Dragan leaves the Tar Heel Sports Network, and because of his ability to speak Serbian, gets a Winter Olympic position when the Olympics were in Sarajevo in 84. He had been the researcher for opening and closing ceremonies. He was promoted to ABC head of research. In 1988, he needed a new researcher. I'll never forget, standing in my room at the house, at this time at Pritchard Avenue. Phone rings, it's Dragon. Hey, we're catching up. I need somebody to do research for the opening and closing ceremonies of the Winter Olympics. Will you do it? That was one of those moments where, scared to death, could I do that? I mean, am I capable of pulling that off? And I'm about to have a chance to do something that has been a lifelong dream. And then to be the researcher for Jim McKay, who at that time was the voice of the Olympics, and Peter Jennings, and I hung out with them for 30 days and was a part of conversations politically, economically, socially, that I had no business being a part of, but they took me in. That first lighting of the Olympic cauldron in McMahon Stadium for the opening ceremony, which was broadcast live, that was one of those moments when I thought, my gosh. Because as a kid growing up on Tobaccoville Road, I loved the summer games, but there was something exotic, something unusual about the winter games because there were all these funky sports, luge and bobsled and alpine skiing that a kid from North Carolina couldn't relate to, but they were all in these little places like Grenoble and Innsbruck and St. Moritz, and I was fascinated by these pastoral little places in these little towns tucked away in Europe, and it just captured my imagination. So to be able to be there with those people, to be in that moment, <laughs> 
And the day before the opening ceremony, I had watched every Winter Olympic that Jim McKay had ever announced for because I wanted to know what he might think, what he said, what he might ask. And so the day before the opening ceremony, I went down to the floor of McMahon Stadium, and there was the cauldron that would be lit the next day. And I'm thinking, yep, he might ask this question. And so I started running up the steps to the cauldron, counting them. I got to about 43, and there were 18 security people coming after me from every direction. <laughs> I get to the top, 50, I turn around, I'm coming down, I'm coming down, I'm coming down. Don't do that again. I'm so sorry, I just needed. We're in commercial break the next day. A little eighth grade girl is going to be the one selected to take the torch and go up the steps to light the cauldron. It's a 30-second break. I can see the stage manager counting us down. Eight, seven, six, five. McKay turns over his right shoulder and goes, I don't know why he did this, but he always called me Sir Fred. Sir Fred, how many steps to the cauldron? 50, Jim, 50. (laughs) Out it went to 40 million people. And I had this just wonderful feeling that... I worked for one entire year for a two-and-a-half-hour show and maybe used 30%. But when McKay told my boss, so to speak, Dragan Mihaljevic, how did Fred do, he was perfect. I mean perfect. I could have died and gone straight to heaven. It was the most wonderful moment, and it was one of those moments that I realized as a little kid from rural North Carolina with two grandfathers who were tobacco farmers, and one of them could not read or write. I was standing with Peter Jennings and Jim McKay, and we were doing the opening ceremony of the greatest event around the globe. That was a pretty cool moment. So that's number one, and joining us is what, 1B? Is that like 1A or 1B? (laughs) When he sat down in Jones' office and slammed the door. (laughs) Which Uh, I was told that that was a very difficult challenge here, but I felt like that I... Lesser men than you, Freddie, have trouble with it. Uh, Like Marcus Page of the world. Marcus didn't do that? Sean May couldn't handle it. Uh, Sean... Freddie, we can't thank you enough. Guys, this was fun. This was like uh, sitting around in somebody's living room munching on... Nachos or something. That's that's our goal. Except Jones didn't give us any nachos. Yeah. You know what, Adam? Next we got to work on that. Yeah, next time there'll be a buffet. Who's who's our agent here? Yeah, uh, really. Yeah, that guy needs to get to work. Um, this was fun. Thank you, Freddie. Thank you so much. I really would like to do this again. I mean, we could. There are millions of subjects that we didn't touch on that we would like to. So thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we look forward to talking with you again in the near future. And of course, we'll see you many times. Well, as, we'll uh, as we cross paths many times, and. Uh, I enjoy you guys. I enjoy and blessed to call you friends. And thanks for having me a chance or giving me a chance to to to, to spend stories with and to hang out with. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was good, wasn't it? Not because of anything we did. We didn't do anything. That was good, though, huh? He's just the combination of the fact that he's been there for so many great moments, and he tells it like he, no one else does. Best storyteller I've ever met. That's an unbeatable combination. He really has been at some amazing – I mean, he's lived an incredible life. He really has. 
And he's such a genuinely nice person. I mean, he has every right to be like, whatever, Jones and Adam, I'm not coming down yeah. there to talk to you guys. <laughs> um, what just what a cool, cool stuff. And there, there's there's a lot more than that yeah. in there. We've only scraped the surface. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. We had a really fun time doing it um, and look forward to having Freddie on again. I really do want to get him back in here and uh, chat with him again about a variety of topics. Um, Adam, any pressing issues from you before? Oh, we... yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Before we shut down the pod. I got several things. Number one, 1957 team going to be at Chapel Hill Sportswear tomorrow from 2.30 to 4. How many times do you get to get the autograph of, I think every living player is going to be there? I think. If not, for sure, Rosenbluth and Quig, that's all you need to know. You should go. 2.30 to 4, Chapel Hill Sportswear. And they're going to be honored at the game. Hopefully get a great reception. Oh, they will. Yeah. 60th anniversary of that. It feels like the 50th yep. anniversary celebration was two weeks ago. I told somebody that the other day. We just had the 50th. And now it's the 60th. Yeah, that's wild. So, uh, I think that'll be a halftime and they'll get a great reception. and Just a great group of guys. Um, okay, also, can you play your call of the game-winning field goal against Florida State? I can. I'm going to have to do it after. I'm going to have to put it in post. Do we do we have okay. to listen to it while no. you and I are both right here? No, no. Okay. As long as as long as the people can. Yes. Okay. It will. It will. I will insert it right now. Nick Weiler for a 54-yard potential game-winning field goal in Tallahassee. Snap back. Spot down. The kick is cleanly away. It is good! And Nick it's Weiler with a yes, sir. 54 yard field goal. And how about them Tar Heels? They do it! Weiler is showing the Florida State chop as he runs down the field. The second consecutive game that the Tar Heels win it in the most unbelievable fashion. So that was Jones's call <laughs> of this year's game winning field goal against Florida State. So, Asher's on a baseball team with this kid named Brady. Okay. Brady Nathanson. And Brady's mom texted me yesterday mm. and said that their five-year-old neighbor is about as big a Tar Heel fan as you will find. I support that. Brady recorded this five-year-old doing this commentary that he memorized. Mm. He's not reading this. He did it by uh. memory. His name is Davis Leisure. And I thought this was this was totally like the kind of thing five year old Jones or five year old Adam would have done, and so I I said, can I use this on the pot? I got I got permission. Don't yeah. worry. And she said it would be okay. All right. Okay. Hold on. I'm trying to get it all set up. All right. Hold on. For a 54 yard potential game winning field goal in Tallahassee. Snap back. Spot down. The kick is completely away. It is. Good. Yes, sir. A 54-yard field goal. And how about them Tar Heels? They do it. Weiler is showing the Florida State shot as he runs down the field. The second and second of game that the Tar Heels win it in the most unbelievable fashion. <laughs> that is awesome. I, my favorite part of that whole thing. And that's the first time I've heard this. Yeah. Is how he slid in the yes, sir, that Brian Simmons <laughs> said. Because uh, Brian was fired up, as we all were. And Brian was like, ha ha, yes, sir. That was awesome. He was doing all the parts. He's like a one-man band. 
That I was have, so he's five, Joan. So you got about twenty more years, and then you're <laughs> then you're done. You know, and this is going to be really, uh, this is going to be really emotional. Not from like, I mean, just like what I'm about to say. That's what I think is really cool. Some about what I get to do, right? right? And I remember after the geo call, some young younger Tariel fan, I mean, eight sent me something like like he had written down word for word what I had said during the play. But you're right. I mean, I did the like the Rick Fox layup against Oklahoma in the 1990 NCAA tournament or uh, Chris Weber's timeout in 93. I mean, I had all of those plays memorized just like that. And that's what's so cool about getting to do what, what we get to do on the radio. No doubt. And you would have never, ever dreamed ever – in 1993, when you were echoing that call, that one day Davis Leisure would be echoing yeah. the Jones call. That's totally awesome. Man, this has been quite a journey on this podcast today. Yeah. Um, I don't know how we top this pod. I think this will be the last one. <laughs> Ever. It's yeah, over. Don't worry. Just the next one we do, it'll be Duke Week. Oh, baby. That's right. We may only have one pod next week because, because that Duke game is on Thursday and it's on the road. And we don't want to cheapen the pod by recording it before the Duke game. Yeah, you can't do that. And I think it's going to be too late. I, I think there, it'd just be – now, there's always a caveat. If the Tar Heels win the game, we, <laughs> right. may be, we may be on such a high yeah. of excitement that we want to come and talk about it. We may go sit down at center court at Cameron, H- Hansborough Indoor Stadium and do it right there. Just do the pod right from center court. So there, I, I shouldn't say it's totally off the table because Tar Heels have a chance, of course, to win that game. Right. Um. But I just don't know. But we will definitely have one, of course, earlier in the week. And I think we will talk a lot about Carolina Duke. And I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Maybe we can talk about our favorite Carolina Duke memories and got a lot of old, cool radio calls that we can throw in there and all that kind of stuff. That'll be fun. Well, this has been a good pod. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time on the Carolina The preceding has been a Learfield presentation. Some people just know bundling with Allstate means big savings. Just like they know the right ingredient means big flavor. They know honey on pizza is where it's at. And olive oil on ice cream is the cherry on top. And they know when you bundle home and auto with Allstate, you can save up to 25%. Mm Mm-mm. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. All state vehicle and property insurance company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.